Welcome back to Rockstock Channel. It is Tuesday, December 19th at 5.45 a.m. And uh, this is the last Rockstock Channel uh, interview of the year. Um, I am wearing my celebratory um, festive hat and also uh, wearing a Michigan shirt because uh, Michigan is number one in the country and uh, is playing Alabama in the Rose Bowl on New Year's. So go blue. Uh, we have... For the first time, two new guests, um, but people who I've known for a long time. Uh, we have Mac Whale, uh, senior analyst at Cormark Securities in Cellside Analyst in Toronto, and Darko Kuzmanovich uh, at Henderson Investors in Australia uh, on the buy side. I've known both of these gentlemen uh, for you know, more than 10 years, uh, in Darko's case, probably 20 years. Um, and uh, so long experience with commodity cycles uh, broadly, uh, going back to the you know 2000 super cycle, uh, but also having experienced um, you know three at least three lithium cycles uh, in the past uh, you know few years. Mac, why don't you just introduce yourself a little bit more uh, and what c companies you currently cover? Um, on the sell side in the lithium space, and then Darko, if you could introduce as well and actually talk about some of your holdings um, in in the lithium space, because you have a global mandate. You don't just invest in ASX listed stocks. Mac, why don't you start? Sure. Yeah, um, thanks for having me on, Howard. I I um, I've been at Cormark nineteen years, uh, or just almost finishing nineteen years. I was at National Bank prior, and. Um, uh, back in the 90s, I was actually, I did a lot of work and um, I did a PhD at MIT and then was a professor out west on the West Coast and did a lot of work in fuel cells and hydrogen production and solar cells and that type of thing. So my background is really thermodynamics, heat transfer, uh, National Bank and Cormark basically to cover originally technology stocks and then it branched out into power and um, renewable natural gas and all the battery metals. And so I take a much, I think my approach is really a processing approach. We have um, lots of geos, uh, professional geologists at Cormark that will look at the actual resources and do that kind of work. But in this space, and we could perhaps get into that a little bit, so much of the value add is in the processing. It's really important to understand that. So I find that tack that I take um, has been helpful over these sort of these cycles. So I'm sure we'll get into that on this call today. And you cover uh, oh, yeah. Mac, which stocks? Yeah, I cover Lithium Americas uh, for a long time now, um, Lithium Argentina, um, Frontier, Critical Elements, Lithium Ionic, um, Sigma Lithium, uh, Lithium Royalty Corp. So obviously a big TSX, TSX venture focus, but we also cover, um, uh, we're looking or we have looked at and are doing reports on regional reports. So we have all the guys in Nevada, um, some of which are ASX listed and same thing in Brazil as well. And taking a look at African names as well, um, increasingly. So um, there's a sort of a, a few companies that we don't actually have targets on yet, but in, you know, officially cover them. And you cover Patriot as well. And Patriot, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And remember all that. Right, all right, Darko. Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I've been in the investment industry since 1994. Uh, my original background is a metallurgical engineer. Uh, 
that worked in various operations around Australia, lead and zinc, uh, gold, and then uh, also an engineering firm that designed and constructed process plants. Okay, and Darko, uh, in your funds, what stocks in lithium do you currently own? Uh, right now, we're kind of playing a, a strategy which is more of a development story rather than necessarily earnings-driven companies, because obviously they're in earnings downgrade mode. So we used to have Albemarle, SQN, Allchem, etc. And given the negativity at the moment, we've shifted some of our exposure to things like Patriot. Uh, we are in Pilbara because I think that's a cheap name for what, for what it's doing and where it's going. Uh, we've been in Azure, uh, a company called Wildcat, um, and then obviously looking for the next series of names to, to get involved with. Okay, great. We'll get into uh, those specific names later. I think uh, um, I'm very interested in, in getting both of your perspectives uh, because uh, the RK Equity Scoreboard has a vast kind of divergence of valuations um, of companies at various stages of development. We've talked about, you know, the Pierre Lassonde curve on from exploration to production and then that middle period. But, you know, when price declines as much as it has, you know, then exploration, um, you know, may do less well. Before we start today's video, we'd like to thank Lithium Royalty Corp, listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange, ticker symbol LIRC. We'll share more later in the video. So, so there's been a lot of volatility in the market. So I want to speak to that first. And uh, we had uh, Ken Brinsden on the podcast recently, uh, a very well liked and, um, uh, you know, but we made a lot of comparisons to iron ore uh, in, in that. And I want to call up a couple of charts here that compare like the lithium price to the iron ore price. There's lithium carbonate, you know, we often compare spodumene to um, iron ore and the parallels are not uh, exact, of course, but it's very much, you know, Australia driven spodumene going into China and, and also Brazil uh, in a similar way that, um, you know, spodumene is there. So, uh, you know, what, what, what one thing, you know, Rodney and I have been, we've been lamenting or, or complaining or, you know, unhappy that, you know, the price has fallen so far. Um, and we had called, you know, the bottom in April, uh, and then we've had, you know, a, a, a lower low. But um, the fact that it's happened so fast uh, is actually a, a good thing. So just by comparison, the last cycle, I, I if you recall up this chart here, it, last cycle was from like December 27, the peak. Uh, it, you know, is at 171,000, you know, Redmond B, you know, and then in November 2020, uh, we had a trough of 39,000 RMB, which was a 77% decline over three years. And then in the ensuing two years, uh, we went from that 39,000 all the way to 597,500, uh, which was a 1400% gain in two years. Uh, but then from that peak, which is literally just 13 months ago, um, we have fallen now to 98,500, which is an 83% decline in one year. So that 83% decline is more than the 77% decline that we had, you know, over a three-year period from 2017 to 2018 to 2020. So might we have a quite sharp reversal uh, given how fast we have fallen? And I think there are parallels, you know, an iron ore, if we call iron ore chart, there's a long-term iron ore chart. And actually people compare... So oh, lithium's immaturity is the reason for its volatility, but 
a relatively mature industry like oil is very volatile and a, and a relatively mature industry like iron ore is also very volatile if you look at this chart. So we can go back like a long way and you can see the rise in the super cycle and we could talk about that. But in, in the more recent term, we have seen iron ore from April 2020, which was, you know, bottom of COVID or the very beginning of COVID, iron ore went to $84. In 18 months later, June 2021, it was at 215, right? 153% rise. But then five months later, you know, it was down to $90, you know, 58% decline. I remember being on a mineral resources call and, you know, they went from paying very high dividends to paying no dividends. And it was like a big shock, you know, but that's actually when mineral resources, the, the, the mineral resources used to trade with the iron ore price. It was that period of time where it shifted to start trading with the iron ore, uh, with the uh, lithium price. And now it's doing, it's going back to a little bit iron ore. I think it's been a bit, you know, supported there. But in any event, we had this 58% decline in five months. And then four months later, it was at $147, March 2022, a 63% mm -hmm. rise. You know, then six months after that, it had fallen 36% to $94. And then now it's back down, back up to 131, um, you know, just six months later. So you've had very significant six-month volatility within iron ore. Maybe Darko, you 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 cover iron ore and these markets. Mm -hmm. What's happening China-wise in the iron ore market? Mm -hmm. Are there parallels to that recent up and down, up and down that you could draw to what's been happening in mm -hmm. lithium? The first observation is, you know, um, one iron ore is not rare; it's everywhere. It's just not everywhere in the con concentrations and, and quality that's needed to make a viable long-term iron ore operation. First of all, the industry is highly consolidated. It's an oligopoly, really. If you look at the top three Australian producers, uh, Rio Tinto, FNG, and, Rio, uh, and BHP, um, Minres is very small in that situation. And then you've got Vale. Uh, they dominate the global seaborne iron ore trade. Um, so volume growth is managed and controlled. You know, they do respond to market demand, but demand isn't growing materially. In fact, I think what surprised the market is that demand hasn't fallen as kind of expected uh, or anticipated by the market, especially with the slow in China. And what's happened is Chinese steel production actually hasn't declined, uh, which if you, if you look at the commodity burn, you know, China came from nothing back in the 80s, 90s to to be a billion dollar steel, a billion ton steel industry, which is a uh, compared to the US, which is about 80 to 100 million ton, you know, that's a significant difference. And that all happened in a period of probably 20 years, which was the commodity burn uh, that China drove. It, it doesn't grow at that rate anymore, it's flat, and the market's been anticipating that that global uh, Chinese steel capacity will fall because their industrialization and urbanization phase. It hasn't stopped, but the rate of change has really stopped. It's low growth now. But what they've managed to achieve, especially in the short term, that's why the price has spiked, is that they are exporting more steel than anyone's anticipated. So whilst their domestic economy isn't consuming as much, they're managing to export it to other people, therefore steel production is, is, is pretty high. Uh, driven by also relatively, I would say low, but not very high inventory. 
And the buying patterns of Chinese steel mills are really driven by margin. So if their steel price increases, they're quite happy to buy and pay more for iron ore because they're extracting a reasonable EBITDA margin or EBITDA margin on their product. Now, if they were to stop that, very, you know, uh, go from a profit to uh, a loss, they'll stop producing steel. So they're very adaptable. Uh, and when you've got a supply-driven market that is it's dominated by key suppliers who overwhelm the consumers, you get a very orderly, orderly market, which is what the iron ore market is. Very different to anything. So you, you talk about OPEC and you talk about oil and oil and gas, let's say oil. Um, even OPEC today is struggling to control the oil supply because there's so many different suppliers. You've got a major development in Guyana with Exxon. Uh, that's going to grow to over a million barrels a, a, a day at some point. So you've got a lot of sources of supply, lots of competition, whereas that's not the case in, in iron ore. So if we translate that to, to lithium, lithium clearly is not there yet, okay? Um, it's an emerging industry, as we'd say. Clearly, five years ago, you know, there was probably really only three to five key players. You know, Chinese going Feng Changshi, um, Albemarle SQM, and uh, now Liven or Kim. Um, since then, you've got a number of kind of new players coming in. Dilbo's come in. You'll have Lithium Argentina coming and ramping up. They could be a substantial player. You've got Minerals, of course. So whilst the industry is growing, new entrants are also coming. And the industry is yet to get to that phase where there's an equilibrium. I don't expect there will be one for a while because it's a fast growth industry. Um, but we are starting to see some elements of consolidation, which might help, if you like, uh, supply and demand dynamics, which might then help price volatility. As far as price, who would have expected from the bottom of the site last downswing to now? that product prices or chemical prices would be $80,000 a ton, no one. I remember as we were entering that downswing, you know, the marginal cost of production that was forecast by brokers was $7,500 a ton, okay? And that was kind of it. And now here we were at 80 and we're back to 20 and 20 is still good, okay? It's just that that move up to 80, I think, What's changed this time to the last downswing is that the players that came into this market are very different players to who were there before. Um, I think the move to 80 just attracted so much more capital from so many sources. And then clearly it's attracted hedge funds, so people that can short the space. And if you look at a Pilbara, Pilbara's got something like 17% short position in the stock. Uh, Liontown was something like 12 to 14% short just before uh, the Albemarle bid. So that's what's happening in the space. Uh, you know, that'll all change over time, but that's where we are today. Okay, great. That, so let me just pick up on that. Uh, I tweeted about short positions in uh, American listed stocks uh, last week, uh, LAC, Piedmont, uh, Albemarle, you know, and Liven. We had what seemed to be a bit of a short covering rally, you know, last week on the back of the Fed, um, you know, forecasting, you know, rate cuts and the end of the rate rise cycle. And there was some speculation on, on COP28, you know, commentary there. But I think it was more um, that. So, Mac, what do you uh, yeah. what, what do you think yeah, price-wise and what's happening in the market? 
Yeah, there's a lot to unpack in that. And as I was listening, a bunch of things hit me. So maybe I'll go back a little bit. Um, when we started covering back in Taliesin days, actually, um, in 07, we have this really good chart that sort of shows pricing um, over 20 years. And it's interesting because we, we don't really look at much of the spikes. If I showed you, you could see this line that does this. And every time there's whatever noise and it comes down and hits that line and it goes below pretty shallow, comes right back up. And then it does that again and again and again. So in our, in our, it's done it four times actually, but the declines are very shallow. So in this particular round, the last one, you know, we keep each, each time, if I go back and look at my notes, um, I charted out my sort of incremental, like the way that line goes is what we use in our long-term pricing. And sure enough, it's eight and we moved it up to 12, then 15, 17 and a half, 20. Like you can see it and it, it hits, it goes below and it can go below in the time frame when you show that chart, it looks horrible, right? When you're living it um, and it can go lower from here and it can, it can well, go well into the low teens, but it'll come, it'll snap back. And when you look at that on that long-term chart, it's a tiny, shallow decline below that line. And then it usually goes, it's off to the races again. So earlier when you were talking, um, um, part of what's happening, unlike iron, is, and you, you mentioned it, Darko, the, the fact is you're building a brand new industry. So it's not global, it's not new entrants taking market share in a world that's growing at GDP which goes through then a recession, then GDP goes back, right? You've got, you certainly do have that. Plus you have a whole secular industry being, being built upon that cycle. So you're going to see these sometimes a compounding effect when both of those are coinciding to the upside or the downside or they're mixed. And I think what we've been seeing is exactly that play out over this year. So it makes complete sense given Chinese buying habits that you would see this reaction, the price would go down, particularly in a world in which everyone's worried about GDP and recession and global recession. So that was a foregone conclusion. And now we're living out that bottom part where um, I'm expecting it'll, it'll go down, stay low, get that washout trade, and then we'll be, we'll be back in a sort of a growth mode, coinciding with sort of economic growth along with Chinese buying. And that's what you get another, another jump up. But in the end, it'll come crashing down again. And probably, you know, if that plays itself out over a two year period, then we could be having this call again in, in two years or three years, and it'll be the same sort of pattern because of this extremely tight situation with demand rising smoothly and supply going in chunks where you oversupply and then it get, the demand catches up etc. So expect that to happen for the next decade. That's the way I look at it. And you have to live through those cycles. Um, so when it comes to um, the stocks, like I was having um, some drinks last night with some fund managers that are more generalist. And we were talking in our morning meeting, I asked them about this, because we were bringing it up in the morning meeting, how powerful the general rally has been in, in Western stock markets over the last call it, month. And I'm like, I'm looking at him going, my screen has been red for that whole time. What is, can you put it in the context? Like, it's terrible. And he goes, the crap you're looking at is terrible, Mac. What do you mean? And he goes, and then we went through it all. And he said, yeah, this is one of the most powerful uh, rallies. Had it not been for the last five weeks, 
most fund managers in Toronto would be sitting there going, we're in another down year and 22 was terrible. Um, because of this rally being general in nature, it hasn't yet gone to this, the stocks that are, um, what do you call it? The, the more um, resource stocks here in Toronto. And um, that may take months before that catches up. So we're looking at the situation where you're seeing a general improvement. Um, and it has to do, as you rightly pointed out, Howard, with the interest rate changes and just the perception that we're through the worst part of that. But it, it hasn't got anyone looking at resource stocks yet. And so that continues. Like it's a struggle even to show people, you know, the price chart and you show them and you say, look, Lithium Royalty Corp will absolutely rip when this returns, right? It's got none of the financing risk directly. Um, and it has all the exposure to a, a, you know, a diversified set of companies developing and it has all the, all the price exposure. And it's not even moving. In fact, it's going down a little bit lower. So it's a tough situation to tell, advise people to get ahead of that. But it will turn and, you know, it takes that turn before the rest of the investors pile in. But pretty confident we're seeing the lows, even though it could be lower for a month. Um, it could be lower for a couple months. But I think we're in that phase where we're washing out. So, Doka, we one of the things we see in amongst the pricing cycle that's been volatile is thematics that become popular and then they don't. Um, and we've seen various plays like unconventional flow sheets and then back to conventional hard rock and brown. It's mostly been hard rock. But within that, we then see themes. We, we had a period where, um, and we agree, we, you know, we think North America has opportunity where TSX and Canadian Lithium place took off, uh, uh, quite a lot of actually invested on the ASX. And then we've now had this raft of M&A going on in, uh, in Australia. It seems if you don't have a Wallabies uh, cap on, you, you get uh, a black eye if you step into the space there. So there's more news coming out. So um, your thoughts on, um, on the shift, how that might play out, you know, you know, the, where the M and A is going on the ASX with Chris and Gina, and then is uh, you know your thoughts on on valuations for you know non Aussie plays that have that have come off quite a bit recently. First, you know, I mean, just a general observation about the TSX versus the ASX. I remember when I first started in the space, you know, the place you wanted to be is the TSX because that was. Uh, dynamic, exciting companies are raising money. The investors were there, uh, supporting juniors, mid caps, etc. I think I think that's actually dissipated over the last probably I don't know three to five years. Uh, where actually I think the ASX is a much more dynamic market for juniors than the TSX. Now there's probably a number of reasons. You know I think partly because I think you know the odd odd thing about Canada is that you know if you look at the the China-driven resource boom, whilst Canada participated, it never was really focused on China. So it, it was really more focused on the US because it's a, it's got a manufacturing industry, it's integrated into all sorts of industrial activities. And yes, it's got nickel and yes, it's got copper, but it never really got into that China thematic, whereas Australia has. Um, 
And probably the best example is is hard rock, you know, lithium. Um, five years ago, you know, the leading producer of lithium was you know the Brahmins from Chile, Marlin SQM. Within three years of it, Australia is the leading producer of, of lithium, all from hard rock. It's just significantly transformed you know, the landscape over the last two or three years. Now, why do we do that? It becomes a access to capital and the dynamism of companies who are looking at opportunities and aggressively moving. And I guess over the last 12 to 18 months, not only the companies themselves have made money, but investors have made money, which is more important. As investors have made money, they are now happily recycling uh, into smaller and smaller names doing the same thing or trying to do the same thing. Whereas if you look at Canada, you know, the, its history in lithium is a bit mixed, in fact, negative. I'd probably say if you look at the, um, you know, you've got Canada lithium, North, uh, Canada lithium, um, that was a disaster. Uh, Namaska was a disaster. Um, those are not great examples of, of projects and stories that would draw in investors from Canada, especially in a market when juniors are not that interested or not well supported. So there's a total difference in the market. And what I've noticed in Australia is that they everything can be financed very quickly and very simply, and it has been. And more so, I think the, the other aspect of the dynamism is that the Australians have been very aggressive to move off into, um, into Canada. So I would imagine I can't give you the whole number, but there's more Australian companies exploring for lithium than Canadian companies exploring for hard rock in, in Quebec and Ontario, uh, which sort of sell, says something. And at the same time, you know, the new emerging Brazilian uh, space is also lots of Australians going back into that, although there are obviously other companies there. So I think the Australians have been a lot more dynamic, a lot more flexible, and have had access to capital. Uh, in terms of valuations, I actually find the whole thing perplexing. You know, if you look at the pre the last downturn back in 2018, if I just use Albemarle as an example, you know, Albemarle as a corporate was trading at 15, 16 times EV per day. That's the sort of metric we use. Today, it's trading on six, okay, on, on 23 numbers and nine on 24 numbers, and that's assuming there's gone earnings downgrades which is what we're seeing in standards in the space. So the irony is, despite a strong underlying demand in the, in the products that they produce, um, the very strong structural setting that will last for quite a period of time, most of these companies have been derated by, by investors, which I find fascinating. And I haven't got an answer for that. I mean, if I take a more extreme view, Young Fang, I remember looking at its... EVT with that model. It was like 35 times back in 2017-18. And today, just bring it up, it's ridiculous, to be honest. It's 10 times. So I don't have an answer for that, other than maybe it's just, um, you know, broad investors coming in, obviously selling the space down because it's, a, it's been a great short opportunity. But the question, I guess, is will these stocks re-rate um, over time as, as the sector, as the space realigns itself and gets back to stronger prices, strong volumes? I can uh, jump on that issue if you don't mind. There is some things people need to be aware of. Um, 
if you go back about 10, 15 years ago, Toronto, the, the regulations mandated that resource managers had to hold a certain percentage of their portfolio in Canadian stocks. They got rid of that. Australia didn't get rid of that. So you have that is a supply and demand issue, right? So when you have a captive market with a certain amount of money chasing a certain number of deals, you get an inflated multiple. So that has to be kept into, you know, kept in mind. So what's happened, and it's not that the market's not dynamic, that you, we have a lot of mining companies. In fact, one of the biggest exports probably that Canada has is brain power with people finding other opportunities, whether it's in the tech space, entertainment, mining, they're all over the world because there's not that many opportunities in Canada itself. It's a small um, economy. Um, but the, the, the stock market has this structural regulatory artifact, in fact. And so that changed. There's talk that they may be bringing in that back, but that's why. And so basically all our fund managers are globally looking. If you look at their percentage of their, what they own, um, they own all over the world. And as you rightly said, Darko, a lot of US stocks, and they would look at valuations in Australia and go, I'm not touching any of that. It's way too highly valued. So they're out looking globally for value and they're not finding it in Australia, which is this ironic sort of situation. Um, when it, we come to the multiple, the, and then you have compounded on that exactly as you said, Darko, this demand for materials in Australia and you're in Australia or from, sorry, from China and you're in Australia supplying that and you have a captive market, you can see you have all the effects for a bit of a, a kind of a, uh, of like a balloon, right? Mm -hmm. So that gets inflated, but it also, the opposite happens and we're in that situation where nobody wants them and nobody else is there but that money, you will see valuations go to the downside and it'll overshoot negatively. Um, the other problem is when you look at the earnings market, if you look at all the quant and tech analysts, they look at earnings. And so they don't even look at EBITDA and they don't even look at cash flow. And as a result there, that's a much harder metric to do well on, to do well at. So it's a tech focused and services focused market. And they do not understand resources. It's hard for them to get their head around it. So that just means there's fewer people looking. And it means your valuations are just lower because it's, it, it becomes a niche. Whereas on the TSX or ASX, it's the other way around. It's, there's the tech stocks aren't all that great. All the best people and best ideas are in the US and listed there. So meanwhile, you get all the best, the better kind of mining stories are in other markets, right? So it's this interesting kind of dynamic that investors need to keep in mind that it's a market and it's psychology and it's it's a supply and demand of an idea that you're paying for and the multiple is completely arbitrary and so that's why you'll even see you know two companies on the trading on the same stock exchange and different businesses with different multiples you look at all the metrics are the same the roe the like the um, you know, the return on invested capital, like all sorts of metrics. One has a different multiple and you go, why? What? It doesn't make any sense. You can get the same, you should be able to get the same return, the same value added economically, but you have a different set of investors and they go, we're just not paying that for some, for that company. We're going to pay this. And so the psychology is super important to understand in the cycle. But anyway, that's just my thoughts. I, I, I think that those are great points. When I studied, you know, at Columbia Business School, uh, efficient markets, globalization, it, you would think that, you know, information is available to everybody, uh, valuations across all the markets, you know, should be the same. 
but and, and the ASX the ASX and the TSX are good examples of that. They are not efficient markets. Exactly. But also in America. So there were times when Lithium Americas and Piedmont had crazy high valuations because the EV thematic was so strong and they raised a lot of money at high valuations. But now, you know, sentiment in the EV space is not great. Therefore, those stocks, which are dominated by U.S. trading, are, are trading relative. And so, you, you, and so you, what you do you have argue. in the U.S.? This is interesting, right? With the narrative this fall got hit by a bunch of things. You had um, you had a big um, energy company saying, hey, look, um, or not energy, uh, uh, automakers, we can't sell these things. We can't sell vehicles. We can't sell uh, full electrics. So we're slowing everything down. We have high inventories. And everyone goes, oh, you can't sell them. Everyone's demand model's wrong. Then you had, look at Exxon, Chevron, Schlumberger, uh, Koch brothers. They're all getting into DLE. The supply's gonna, you know, the demand is way lower forever supply is going to be way higher and then you go guys stop trying to tell you, you, you this is the psychology i need and i'm an investor i lost a bunch of money i need a story to tell myself to not jump off the ledge right and so it's not my fault it's coke brothers it's uh and then they look and they say what's well, no it's 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 um oems and all of those are stories people tell themselves because it's all red herrings and if you work your way through it, you realize, oh, what are they going to do? They're going to sell more hybrids. Then you look at your demand model and you realize, and we've long had this hybrid dominant demand model. And when you tweak around with it, sure enough, you can make a battery. If someone can give you a battery, an OEM is going to throw that in a car and they're going to get a man, they're going to get mandated to put that in a car and they'll make money on it. So if you can make a battery and you can get lithium and put it in a battery, you're going to sell the battery. What do you care if it's in a hybrid or a battery electric? You don't. In the end, you just care about your lithium being sold, right? So that when you look at your demand model, it's not that important. The mix, if you understand the behavior of the OEM, which is chase subsidy. Then when you go to the supply side and you dig into DLE and you go, DLE is not magic. Like you got those DLE circuits at the end of every single hydroxide conversion facility. You pick that up and you move it to the front and you put raw brine in, it's not going to work. And I certainly, I wouldn't bet against big oil to figure out what you need to do in front of that, because they will need something in front of it to make what they have at the back of every circuit to work on the front. They will need to do something to that and change the absorbance and maybe put multiple units of different types of absorbent. Whatever they do will not be done by 2026 or 2028. It'll be 2030 plus. So your supply curve and... and I, I would be hard pressed for any investor to look out four years. And when you show your supply demand going to 2030, you see the eyes glaze over. And I think the issue is those two elements to supply and demand will not have a factor in any time horizon that investors on the buy side should care about. And yet it, it informs how they're going to decide to invest this quarter or, or next year. So that's, you have to live through this sort of cognitive sort of dissonance where you have to understand that information, rationally absorb it, and then figure out what other people will do and then position yourself in advance. And it's not necessarily the truth. It's more what do you think will be the next story? So it's a very 
it's hard for someone with a scientific background to wrap my head around that, but that's how people are actually behaving. It's not all rational. So you have to you start with a sort of rational viewpoint and then try to understand how it will play out. So we debate that literally every day at work is that kind of dynamic. Like what are people going to do now with this new information? So it's fascinating. Mac, um, we may have to have you on again, like in January, sure. because <laughs> there um, is a lot you know, to cover here, but um, permitted mines are hard to find uh, in, in this space. So it, it's good to be on the exploration side and Azor could get bought, you know, pre-resource. I think people don't worry too much about permitting in Western Australia, but outside of that, you know, they do. And in America, in Canada, they do. So you have critical elements here is a permitted plain vanilla spodumene mine sitting at basically a U.S. market cap of $138 million. Yeah. And then you have Lithium Americas, which is largely permitted, I think they have um, still some people fighting certain things. They both confront financing risk, right? Or, or they're putting together their final package. LAC may get, you know, a DOE loan. GM, you know, likely to be there. That's a very big project. It's an integrated yeah. project. It's not plain vanilla. That's sitting at, you know, a billion market cap. Critical elements is just like, any other yeah. story that, you know, Chris and Gina are fighting over, you know, in Western yeah. Australia. Yeah. And then you also have something like a frontier, which is a very a sizable, solid, yeah. you know, big result, like huge dichotomy there for plain vanilla spot. So how do you yeah. think about that? And then also just the other thing, uh, I'm just making this kind of comparison, lack critical elements and then Lion Town, right? So Lion Town is fully permitted. It's fully funded, right? It's big, it's underground, it's maybe technically challenging. They do have long-term aspirations, so I think they go to downstream, but they're sitting at a 2.6 billion market value, fully funded. Yeah. You know, lack is so, a billion, you, you, you know, like. Yeah, what's going you know, on? You know, or, or, or what's the upside? Like you're bullish on lack, you know, no one yeah. really seems to care about critical elements in Frontier, like what's. What's yeah, your view? so let's hit those really quickly. And, you know, I'm sure guys that work for those companies will listen to me. I'm really simplifying it down, just the issue. So Frontier, amazing resource. It's a big giant blob, but it's a giant blob in the middle of nowhere, really far north. Nothing's going to get done without a road and power. And I've had meetings over the last year. I work a lot with our, um, our investment bankers, and we spend a lot of time with giant mining companies, all of whom are interested in, in the lithium space because they saw that spike and they're hungry and they're interested. Their view is that's the government's job. So if all the government has to do is come in and go road power, road power, road power, and that you open up all of Canada, all of these projects are caught up into that. If you then, so Frontier is great but it's hard to understand how they're in control of their destiny because of the infrastructure issue. That's what's impeding it. You know, they have a plan to work around that and everything else. I won't go into that, but that's the issue because people are like, I'm not sure if I believe it or not. Right. If you look at critical elements, as you rightly said, it, that resource is not as good. If you look at the basic elements of it, because of the grade being a little bit lower, another material in there, it's a little bit more complex. But it is permitted and it is the most advanced in the area and it should be moving forward. But this goes back to something we talked about earlier. And I've had discussions in other materials where this has happened, where the government has come in and the various entities that want to put money in and said, you do realize we're not giving you money. 
you make a joint venture, bring in a legitimate partner, we'll give money to the joint venture, not you. Your job, little company, is to get a joint venture and get a great partner. Then we'll, we'll come in. That's, so there's this chicken and egg. And so part of the issue is um, Critical Elements is trying to make sure that they've got those partnerships. You have to do a lot of work behind the scenes that you can't talk about to get those partnerships in place because there's a prize with the money. And the problem in Canada is there is no desire to have any connection with the, with the Chinese government and the Chinese industry. And so you have this element of it makes no sense to build a, a spodumene concentrator in, in Quebec if you're going to ship it to China. It makes no sense. So where's the downstream uh, conversion capacity? And that is a question that they all have, all of the developers are struggling with. The government's doing something about it, but again, they can't say anything about it until it's done. So I think all of Quebec, and I would say the same thing for Ontario and others, will get unlocked when they solve that issue. On LAC, there, it's all about the DOE money, right? So um, they've done a fabulous job on so many elements, um, but the stock is now in that Lasan curve. It's in the worst part, right? Where you got a three-year build, um, you got great partners, but you're not fully financed without that DOE money. And that's a question. And I've heard, we've seen this with Lifecycle, for instance, the DOE money is not easy to get. There's a lot of strings attached to it, or call it legal um, issues you have to sort out that are not amenable to equity investors and strategics. And not that it makes the economics terrible. It's just legally what they want in place is very problematic to actually get a deal completed. That's what's holding up that. So when you have these governments, and, and I think, and our, our CEO has said this several times, he goes, I don't think these government, the government cares at all about the equity investor. And I think he's right. And I think the equity investor knows it. And I think as a result, it, they're a little bit arrogant and they're saying, well, you know, we'll get to it when we get to it. You should be happy. We're giving you a bunch of billions of dollars. And so the issue is markets don't work that way. And, and from a valuation perspective, and we have a, a very elaborate kind of presentation for these big corporate investors to show them where the investment is lacking. So you, you put money in a spodumene play, there is no guarantee your product will get somewhere and be in a battery because there's a hole in the refining part of that value chain when you talk about North America and Europe. So that's changing, I mean, but that's still I mean, in, sorted in, out. North American lithium is selling to China, so critical elements could sell to China for yeah, a time being. What I, you can do it, but it's you're not going to make that much money. The issue is the, the government is looking at it saying, we're building a supply chain. We're not building it for Chinese vehicles so we can import Chinese vehicles. There's no way. Like, they're just not going to allow it. They'll, they'll put an export control on it if they had to. The issue is you need the material now. There is no processing outside of China. So you got the West, Europe and the US and Canada in some fantasy world where they think they can build their own supply chain and at the same time think that China's not going to retaliate and go, wait a sec, you, you, you're trying to you're trying to build your own industry around this. So we're not going to sit by idle, right? So it's a funny world we're in. It's basically seeing industrial policy being used as an economic war, you know, in an economic war. That's what's going on. And, you know, we, that can play out over years. Meanwhile, we're trying to invest for this year's return, right? It's very difficult. So there's a lot of these moving pictures. So when you go and look at LAC, 
I think LAC works out. I think it's going to be a good project, an expensive one from OPEX and CAPEX, but great partners in a great location feeding into their own supply chain. But it's going to be years. It's going to take years for that to play out. And that just is, doesn't sound great for investors, right? Um, but you're, pay, you're, and you're paying a billion dollars for that now. In critical elements, you're paying $138 million. And no one's talking yet about their exploration upside. Everybody loves. Exactly. <laughs> they, they have a lot of tenements over there. So it's just, it's what are you, both of these so companies think, are in the, in, in so the middle of that Lasan curve. So if you're patient, you buy that, right? Like I actually think that the other properties at critical are, are way more valuable than the first, than Rose, frankly. Maybe they need to split it up into different companies and you have a pure developer, but the other one won't get valued as much. I don't like there's things you can do in a better market. And I think they'll look at that. Um, but they their eyes are focused on rows and the market is focused on that. And I do think if you're if you're um, convinced in your analysis on these companies, you would do exactly as you say, you would look at the one that's lower valuation. Our quant technical guy would say, Mac, dead wrong. What you do is you buy strength and you keep buying strength and you buy it until it rolls over and then you sell and you short your weakness. It's a completely different mindset, right? So he's going to be playing momentum up. He'll miss the tops, the turns at the top and the bottom, but he'll hit the, the middle. But in, in, in my experience and in, 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 in resource investing, you need to find you have to go in when people are selling and it's just not all of them are going to be winners, but that's where you pick your winners at really low valuation. And you also have to trade these stocks because uh, they may be long-term, you know, weighing versus short-term voting, but the uh, short-term yeah. voting, um, yeah. you know, if you're, if you're, if you've made three, five times your money, yeah, you could, you, yeah. you could make 10 times and there's, you know, bull markets that works, but yeah. Um, you know, take profits as well. And yeah. uh, so to, to, because we're going to have these ups and downs as you've articulated. Yeah. So last thing before you go, jumping in here from the editing room to tell you about Lithium Royalty Corp. Lithium Royalty Corp is at the center of a global energy transition and manages a globally diversified portfolio of lithium focused royalties in electrification and decarbonization. With 32 royalties on 29 higher grade, lower cost projects from exploration to production, LIRC covers all the bases with well-managed risk, ESG considerations, and a scalable royalty structure. Lithium Royalty Corp is traded on the Toronto Stock Exchange ticker symbol LIRC. To find out more, visit lithiumroyaltycorp.com. It was just on Sigma. There was some news there yeah. that they're going to list the Sigma Brazil subsidiary, you know, in the U.S. and Singapore. I read this as they probably have a lot of Chinese interest and their British Columbia, you know, domicile at parent level yeah. is, is is problematic. Is that the reason? And and what do you think is yeah, a couple of you've things. been a long term shareholder in that and you cover it? Yeah. So a couple of things. There's the oversight issue. Um, when you've got, uh, the governments will probably weigh, think they can weigh in on that. Um, that's a bit of an, that, that by changing the listing that might get around that. I'm not totally convinced you can. Yeah, <laughs> the second I, I, thing, I, I, I don't know, the, are they going to be okay in, on NASDAQ if the Chinese want to buy it? Like, um, exactly. There's a tax issue too, right? Like certainly the way there's, you know, the, the, the original shareholders have made a lot of money and depending on where you're listed and your tax issues there associated with any bids 
I'm not quite sure how that plays out, but there's, you know, whether you're getting, um, whether it's ta the way in which it's taxed and how it's withheld is a, is a consideration if you own billions of dollars of stock, right? So that's an issue. Um, and then you 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 simply have the valuation disconnect. We do have, see some mining companies that have Singapore listings that have better valuations, but it's not always perfectly this, the, the, that way. So you do have a number of factors that make sense that all of them are aligned. Um, I think that's what's happening with that idea and that you know might be able to get those things sorted out even without an actual listing. Like you could perhaps just start it even in the midst, like, I think people are trying to read, is this mean it, the, 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 the takeover is not happening. I don't think it means that. I think it's more about positioning it for legal and tax issues. And you think it's a takeover as opposed to, you know, some joint venture partnership. Yeah, it's been, I think so. It, yeah. Yeah. That, that's my feeling. Like I don't, no. but I might be wrong. Right. Uh, I don't have the company's not been adamant one way or the other. Yeah. I think management is, committed to sell. You know, yeah. If they see a liquidity event, they're incentivized to do it. They're major shareholders. Um, I think the question is just the mechanics of, yeah. of how you do it. And who okay. do you think buys it? Like, you, you got to go, Mac? Yeah, I got to run. I just realized um, I'm running late now, so I got to get okay. changed for thank, thank you very much, Mac. Um, Thanks, and like guys. I said, I Thanks, think Mac, we uh, just barely scratched the surface here. We could have you on yeah. again early next year. Sounds good. All right. Take it easy, guys. Th thanks. thanks Darko, we have some more time. Um, yeah. We could just carry on. I have a few. Uh, want to talk about some of the stocks you're invested in, or, um, you know, or, or considering. Um, but any further comments on uh, Sigma? Uh, yeah, look, uh, we followed the, followed the name for a while. We, we actually bought back in very recently after the pullback. Um, pretty much thinking that, you know, this is going to be a corporate-driven thing. Obviously, operationally, it's ramping up. It's going to be generating cash, all those kind of things, good things, which will help support the valuation. Uh, but probably just talking to Anna and, and, and her strategy over the years is, you know, they are incentivized to sell. So I can't think, you know, the upside, what's the upside, what's the downside? I think at these levels, probably downside is limited, but upside could be material, assuming you know, they're successful in selling. And as we've just mentioned, I think they are incentivized to sell. It is, look, it's a very good asset, great location. You know, Brazil offers significant advantages in mining relative to other jurisdictions. Um, so it'll be interesting. As to who buys it, uh, look, the obvious, you know, clearly one thing that, you know, we keep on hearing, and, and even in this pullback, is Chinese customers are still buying material and honoring their offtake agreements. Unlike in the pre previous downturn where they quickly cut uh, purchasing because they were looking to de-stop. And from what I understand, talking to companies, that has not happened yet. So, and they're constantly being asked to you know, open their doors to look for new contracts, look for new offtake, all that sort of thing. You know, uh, Pilbara, for example, is uh, looking to partner for about 300,000 tonnes of concentrate for their P1000 expansion. And they're looking for partners and they're very confident in saying that sometime early next year, they're, they're about to make some sort of announcement. What that means is they're willing to trade off take for 
uh, equity stake in some downstream opportunity, whether that's an intermediate product or something like uh, you know, an equity stake in a refinery converter facility, like they do have with POSCA. So, um, yeah, it could be the Chinese. I think that, that that's a high probability. But I have also heard, which I think is a bit different, is that they are looking for like a still being opened up is where do the Japanese, where do the Koreans secure their supply? And, you know, the Chinese have managed to one, not only build their own assets, but also buy significant offtake from various parties. Um, the Koreans and the Japanese are less so. And I think if their growth is what they, what they say it will be, then I think they also need to lock in um, long-term supply sources. And what I have heard, it could be some consortia like that. It could be another alternative to the Chinese. I think that would be interesting. Uh, the Koreans just announced $29 billion is going to be made available uh, by the government uh, in loans yes. and equity to their companies. So maybe what you just said has merit. Uh, I had heard a few weeks ago, you know, just rumors of you know Rio Tinto and Volkswagen, mm-hmm. um, which is very possible, but Rio has typically wants much bigger assets. So this is not that big. Um, and they've also talked about not paying up for things. So we shall see. I always wondered why yeah. Vale wouldn't, you know, it's right in their backyard. This would be the perfect entry yeah. for them. But that's all just, you know, idle speculation. Uh, before we go and talk about, you know, some more of the companies, um, could you talk to this uh, chart that's in the, this letter that you put um, out in, in December about, you know, global investors, you know, underweight metals and mining. And, and mm. this could explain the valuation discrepancy that you're talking about. Um, you know, Al Mall used mm. to trade at, at, at much higher mm. multiples. Bank of America does a monthly survey called the Fund Manager Survey, which they publish, obviously, to all their clients. Um, and they pretty much monitor, you know, cash levels, you know, level of bullish, bullishness, uh, bearishness. Uh, just the recent survey has come out basically that the cash levels have fallen as people are committing um, uh, more capital back into equities. Um, and you can see, you know, with the NASDAQ up 40% or thereabouts year to date, <laughs> or, or the S&P up 20%, clearly that's encouraging investors to take cash off, the, off their portfolio and back into the market. But what they haven't done is reweighted significantly to resources. Uh, in fact, uh, the latest, most latest uh, uh, survey indicates that the level of underweight is similar to what it was in uh, the GFC, the global financial crisis of 2008, which I find, find fascinating, but not unexpected because I guess what's been challenging resource, uh, this resource space this year has really been growth concerns. You know, we, you know, you often pick up a lot of information that the U.S. is kind of economic, you know, I would say slowing down materially, but certainly not growing materially. Europe has got growth problems, and in fact, Germany is struggling, probably in a recession as we speak. And China has been a, a disappointment, really, post-COVID, because people have been anticipating a much faster turnaround, and that's been a, a lot more muted. So all of those factors, you know, have been weighing on sentiment for the resource space. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why um, the space is reasonably underweight, given that you've got alternatives that are performing materially better than resource output. When I'm looking at this chart, I see if I go back into the super cycle in in, in the 2000, mm-hmm. 
five to seven period, you had funds went overweight and then the commodity sector outperformed. Um, mm -hmm. But since 2013, you've had you've had periods of time when they've gone overweight, but mm -hmm. they've still underperformed. Mm -hmm. um, right now, we're in a period where they're underweight, but they were most recently, or the funds flow. Actually, fund managers, net percent that say they're overweight materials. In 2021, 2022, um, it showed that they were overweight. And you could see this mm -hmm. very sharp rally, you know, from 2020, you know, but still it underperformed. It's still below this zero mm -hmm. line. Uh, but right mm -hmm. now you're showing that they're, they're net underweight. Uh, you know, there's an opportunity, obviously, in commodities broadly. If they start to go overweight again, we'll have a rally. Yeah. But I guess it's this whole magnificent seven dynamic and the tech and, and mm -hmm. et cetera, that, 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 that must explain so much in the S&P 500, 493 stocks generally are under underperforming relative mm -hmm. to those to those other ones. But anyway, it's an interesting chart. So, uh, Darko, you mentioned um, sort of uh, where the focus was and uh, development versus uh, earning companies. Uh, we, we've seen some recent uh, resource updates and announcements. One in particular was Winsome, just under 60 million mm -hmm. tons for its initial mineral resource. If you look at its market cap, less the cash on hand, we've seen what brokers were suggesting was a value of a ton of resource come off substantially in that instance. Mm -hmm. You know, your thoughts, your thoughts on that company and, and in general, what, what do you think? It does depend on, on how the resource sits and how economic it is. Are your thoughts on Winsome and, and that concept in general? Yeah, look, as a general comment, you know, it's fair to say that uh, maybe you know, five months ago, six months ago, you know, the, uh, the announcement of their maiden resource, it, it would have been, the stock would have been up 10%, not down 10 or more. Uh, so I think partly... The performance poster result speaks to the fact that we're in this bearish market right here, right now. Uh, and the question is what, what will change that? But that's it. That's another question and we can talk about it later. But um, so look, I thought it was a good resource, certainly a good initial um, position. I, I think the all body is shaping up quite well. I think it'll get bigger, of course. Um, I do think there will be a, tiering now going forward and that is if you've got a modest resource 20 30 million tons and that's all you have i think the market may or may not give you much value for it but i think what we're seeing is those t1 type assets you know the, the 100 million ton plus uh, discoveries are where the kind of action has been and, and that's obviously been um lion town you know, which has got about 150, 160 million ton, 1.4%. Uh, that is a tier one deposit. Um, Pilbara obviously has got a tier one deposit. Uh, Azure doesn't have a resource yet, but you know, given the drill results that it has, it's imputing that this will be certainly over 100 million tons uh, when that MRE comes out, or at least a, a site to 100 million tons. But if we go back to Winsome, I think, uh, look, again, I think the first resource is good. I think it'll get bigger. I'm not going to 
to say there's no doubt, but you can certainly see, you know, plus 100 million tonnes. And that by itself at that grade should be economic in, in any criteria. Um, I think we're, given that it's listed on the, on the ASX, I think part, probably part of the headwind now is this perception of permitting risk and time in, uh, in Quebec and also its location. You know, this perception that it's isolated and that it will be challenging to develop. Um, I don't agree with that. Whilst obviously it's not situated next to a road 200 kilometres from the port, like some of the West Australian assets are, um, it's got significant offsets, and those offsets are it's operating in a, a good jurisdiction, a mining province, exceedingly low um, power costs to do whatever it wants, um, and access eventually to the property through roads, etc. It's already got access, although it's a circuitous pathway. Uh, that'll change over time. And probably also a competitive labour force relative to, say, labour costs in WA are much different to labour costs in, in Quebec. So when I look at it, I think the project itself will be a project, will be a mine uh, at some point. Obviously, there'll be a, the studies have to take place, uh, but I think it's a good one. And, and I think, um, you know, so, so is Patriot. Uh, obviously, that one's not, would say, more challenging, but people were, were starting to get concerned about the lake water permit, et cetera. But again, uh, most of the additional tons that are being discovered are being discovered to the west, away from the water, and that'll be the uh, start-up of the operation and eventually the, the water permits will be received and you can then build the copper dams and all the rest of it to build them on. And eventually the road network will be built, et cetera, et cetera. And like Murray was saying, actually these assets won't need subsidies. They won't need any encouragement. Uh, if allowed to be built. And this is, I thought that was an interesting point because none of these will be built if you expect them to have a downstream solution because it's too early for them to even contemplate building a refinery. Uh, I think someone else has to do that. Whether that's a merchant player, and I know there are probably half a dozen companies going around that are planning to build merchant uh, refining capacity mainly in Europe, possibly in the US, and maybe even in Canada. Uh, I know Rocktech is one, which is a Canadian company, uh, building one in Germany, but has considered building one in, in Canada. Because I think that's a different ball game. It's a different skill set. You need a lot of capital. And to try to do that as an integrated player from day one, it's not going to work. So for, those for these projects to be built, there needs to be a concentrate solution for a period of time until they can get enough cash flow, improve their balance sheet, and then you're ready to go into a, into a downstream opportunity. In fact, there's an Australian company called Green Tech, uh, Green, Green Tech Metals, uh, GT1. They've got a project in Ontario, and they're considering a, a, a refining project uh, in Ontario from day one. But their business model is to actually be a... Um, use some of their own material, but actually be open to third-party sourcing uh, to produce lithium hydroxide. So that's kind of their business model. And that could be a solution for a Patriot or a Winston at some point in time. I think the project, the refinery is being considered at Thunder Bay, and the project is up um, 
oh, a couple of hundred kilometres north of Geelong. And uh, in terms of Winston, in terms of valuations, uh, I use a little metric for these resource names as uh, EV to uh, uh, dollars EV to uh, contained LCE, and uh, Winston is about $75 tonne per LCE, total resources, and the sector average is about 180. <laughs> so you can see it's materially discounted. So the question then is, you know, what will be the catalyst? And I suspect the catalyst will be just the general improvement in sentiment for, for the space. And then the market will see how, how cheap it is. Yeah, that one, it's an RK equity client and uh, investment. <laughs> and it's just been, uh, you know, they, they over delivered on an under promise yeah. and in terms of yes. time and size. Uh, and, you know, again, markets are inefficient. Um, there doesn't seem to be, there's no lake issue. There's no, there's no obvious, no one I'm speaking to is, is coming up with a, a good explainable reason why it would go down. Um, but, you know, just more sellers than buyers. And you've seen it, 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 the end of the year, it's a, it's a funky kind of time yeah, um, of, of stock price performance. And, uh, you know, some, oftentimes you'll see good news. There'll be some liquidity and then just some investors mm -hmm. for whatever reason need to sell yeah. whatever they can, um, to have liquidity. I think that's the dynamic there, but, uh, luckily cash is going to be, is King very important. There's gonna be a lot of company running out of money. There's gonna be a lot of equity raises next year. And I think Winston did a really good job to get yeah. 70 million, yeah. uh, or they right. have, I think 60, 65 million in the bank. And just someone had a chart. Uh, I was just looking on um, on Twitter, just comparing Patriot to Winsome in terms of how many meters drilled and how much resource they have. And uh, they've only released whatever twenty five thousand meters, Rodney. Um, and, and they mm -hmm. have you know many more holes to, to come. So resource mm -hmm. upgrade is is likely. Um, fingers crossed, they can get to that you know hundred million ton mm -hmm. ton bit. Uh, in the last just you know, five minutes here, we're ending the year live in, you know, all chem merger has been approved from the all chem side. Uh, I think today the live in side, but I don't think there's any real question on the live in side. That there, if there was any question, it was on all chem. So you know, that deal's going through. And you've also had Azure, you know, partnering with Hancock. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a bit of a Rodney asked Ken Brinsden a question, you know, is Chris and Gina going to partner or are they going to like, you know, battle it out? Um, it looks like uh, Gino won here. Um, Minrez, you know, has bought stock at higher prices than the current price. They're sitting there with 10%. Do you think he sells into this deal or, and Mark Creasy is, is another billionaire um, who's entering the fray. Like we're, we're mostly talking about Hancock and Gina. So what do you make about it as an Australian mm. sitting in Australia? Mm. You know, thank God we're concluding with deals consummating and not like, mm. you know, a, a busted mm. Albemarle and Liontown stock is up. People are speculating that mm. Albemarle now will cut a deal with Hancock. So mm. let's end on, you know, WAMNA. Mm. Uh, I guess in terms of, say, Azure, um, look, it's an interesting deal because I guess the, the big surprise this year has been the Hancock Group. They're obviously an iron ore company that's done really, really well. They're private, so they've never actually articulated what their strategy is uh, in this whole thing. But maybe today's announcement probably will start to give you a bit of a, a see-through of what they're planning. And 
because they're an iron ore mining company, they have no interest yet in, in lithium other than what they bought on market, and they don't have any processing technology or anything like that. I think this could be a similar kind of approach to what SQM and West Farmers did with Mount Holland, and that is it was one way for West Farmers to enter the space with an acknowledged operator that can build and operate the asset, and they'll have a see-through to a full integrated model down the track. So they'll be producing chemical rather than necessarily concentrate, and you de-risk that process from that perspective. You know, Gina and her group have got phenomenal cash flow and cash, but what they haven't got is the, the technical experience, and that's what SQM brings. The question will be, and I guess Mark Christie sees that, uh, whilst the deal has only really been for Azure, which owns 60% of the project, uh, there is speculation that Mark Creasy will eventually sell his stake as well into, into the pot. Um, as far as Minerals uh, is concerned, Minerals is a different story because it's obviously already a lithium player, but it's also a hybrid company that's a, a mining services company and also a mining company, both in, in lithium and iron ore. But when you look at its hybrid model, it, it does something different, and that is it extracts value by leveraging its equity position or joint venture position to secure the servicing aspects of the mining activity at the site. So, for example, at Wajina, they have a life of mine mining and mining service contract. They've got the life of mine trucking contract for the product. That's how they add value to their mining services business, which is growing fast. And that was the backbone of the company. So if you look at their M&A transactions in Western Australia, they're now taking it to a next level. And, and, and now Marion, they bought Bold Hill and just given develop a, an underground mining contract to, to work at, at Mount Marion, uh, develop, uh, build Beaumont Asset. They've got a little lithium story themselves um, in, in the broader district in, in southern Western Australia. And you can see the makings of a hub and spoke strategy where uh, Minres will build on its Mount Marion by using a hub and spoke and taking these smaller satellite deposits, which may be uneconomic independently, but could be economic as a satellite mine truck you to the a central processing mill, and that's how they extract the, the value. And if you look at their position in, in uh, Wildcat, which is the sort of Wildcat is the um, follow-up to Azure, it's made what looks like a significant discovery in the Pilbara district of, of WA. Uh, I wouldn't say not far, but let's say 50 kilometres from the Pilbara operations and I think about 80 kilometres from, from the Wajina operations. Um, Minres has got, a, I think, a 13, 14% position. So what you can see from them is that um, for that project to proceed, they, they might say, look, let's proceed, but what we like is the contract to mine, contract to truck, all those kind of things on top of the equity stake in the project. Uh, whereas with Gina, you know, she's obviously playing that new entrant, but with an experienced uh, player. So I think that, that could be a very good outcome, and I think it would be a good, a good outcome for WA, Lithium, Hydrock Mining. And as far as Orkin and uh, Livent, I, look, I think actually that's a very – that's a great company, in, uh, emerging great company, because I think um, Orchem, I think, had a fantastic portfolio of growth uh, in Argentina and obviously an opportunity to expand in Hard Rock with James Bay. 
was obviously vibrant. It wasn't more of an asset-rich story. It was more of an integrated player that's got access to different, uh, different markets and different processing technologies to access those markets. So I think combining those two, I think it, it's, it's a good situation for the company going forward. Now, I see that company being re-rated materially over the next few years. I agree with you on that. We've been a big fans of, uh, you know, call it Rocky three or Rocky four, um, you know, Philadelphia freedom, um, enlivened. Uh, this is, uh, Paul Graves saving grace after, uh, you know, five years of mm -hmm. not doing any deals. Um, he did one big deal mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah, I think, uh, Arcadium, uh, Argentina, Canada, uh, from mm -hmm. a, yeah, with Namaska and James Bay. James Bay got, you know, they're not yet permitted, but I think in terms of building downstream conversion capacity, which is what you and, and Mac were kind of like lamenting as a problem, you know, in, in Canada, that they certainly have the, the means to do it. Um, so, yeah, watch this space. Darko. Um, yeah, and I think structurally, uh, structurally Argentina's got phenomenal growth. And uh, now that they're working on a, a trading agreement with the US and uh, Arcadian being effectively a US company, um, I think that opportunity to sell more product into North America, closer relationships, all that kind of stuff, it as well. We could spend a lot of time talking about Argentina. They just had an election. Uh, I'm optimistic that that, you know, yes. uh, maybe there'll be a Macri-like moment. Uh, for Argentina, like several years ago, but uh, we're out of time. So maybe next time we can talk about mm, okay. Argentina. Uh, I wish you a uh, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. All the best in this uh, festive mm. season, Darko um, and Rodney. Thanks to all, uh, you know, Rockstock Channel, all of our viewers, our Patreons. Uh, it's been uh, a volatile year uh you know it's been uh you know it was pretty optimistic for the first you know few months and then you know we the last few have, have been a challenge but uh darka what would just be your what's your gut feel on you know recovery you know is it three months is it 12 months is it 18 months like when do you think you know we'll be talking more optimistically uh from a, a market price perspective yeah, look i was just talking to a couple of people about it today I, yeah, I think even with the prices falling they continue to fall but i think what we've noticed is the stocks themselves are not falling at the same rate i think so maybe there's a sign that stocks could be bottoming you know, the question is what's the catalyst to to re return look I, I suspect what what i want to hear is the reversal of the things that went neg negative i think that, that that's basically a a sense that EV demand is stabilised and, and possibly growing, uh, a sign that you know, destocking and along the supply chain has kind of come to an end, um, a sense that uh, customers continue to purchase their allocations, and we still have, that's positive. The last IGO uh, quarterly indicated that Changshi will not be taking material for their converter in WA from Greenbushes, so the, that could bank, back up a, a bit more inventory or whatever it may be. Um, so I think I want to see that systematically cleared up, and that's yet to happen. Um, 
And I think the other one, depending on time to, to the turnaround, is whether we do see some production cuts from existing producers. And so far, there's no sign of any of them cutting production. In fact, most of you know, not all of them, but some of them are certainly expanding capacity and they continue to expand. So I guess all that signals is that maybe the fundamentals of the market are not that bad. But if I was to see them cutting production, uh, that could be a positive catalyst because that would hopefully tighten the market in, in the short to medium term. So that's what I'm looking for. I think we might get that from Albemarle. Um, mm. I have said many times that I still think we have a lithium aspogamine duopoly um, mm. with Albemarle and Pilbara controlling Greenbush's Wajina and Pilgangura. Mm. You've talked earlier about um, it's not iron ore in that iron ore is slowly growing, you know, and it's a concentrated oligopoly. Lithium is fast growing, It's but... Do you agree that it's a duopoly, at least in the short term, um, before all these other, you know, mines that are being developed get into production? Yeah, look, it's still, they're still top five players and they dominate the market. Obviously, they're growing at the same time. Um, but I guess it's just, it's not so much, you know, maybe Max sort of related to it. It's not, you know, the other feature of the downswing is that you do have this wedge of supply that's come on over the last 12 months, and that has to be eaten up by the market. So it has to find, find an equilibrium of some sort. Uh, and maybe that's what's happening. Maybe the first sign that I'm, I'm seeing is that uh, potential DSO uh, components of a project have been cancelled. So, uh, for example, Liontown had a DSO idea, and that's not happening anymore, which kind right. of is telling you that you know, that element of the market's cooled off. Uh, I know that uh, Sigma possibly may be selling their load, but you know, maybe it's not. So uh, I think that's another sign that the heat, demand heat, it's, it's come off and uh, that sort of stuff's not needed, which is, to me, generally a good sign. And now we just need to see that sign of um, supply-demand equi equi you know, equilibrium in the short term. And then I think the underlying demand of whatever 20% plus or minus CAGA I think that'll clear the decks pretty quickly. And uh, assuming there's no global recession, for example, next year, I think sometime probably in the first half, I, we probably might reach the bottom. Great. Thank you, Darko. And uh, thanks again to all the Rockstock Channel viewers and Patreons and uh, wish everybody a happy festive season and uh, for all better things in lithium, uh, happy, healthy, and prosperous, you know, 2024. Take care. Thank you. Likewise, guys, all the best.